Good evening, everyone. Welcome. Thank you for being here again, third time. Uh, I am excited about tonight. Not because it's the last one, but because it's the one I've been <laughs> looking forward to the most. Um, we're going to bring it home tonight, what we've been talking about, a future, our future being bigger than the past. So I want to begin by saying um, what a wager this is. When you think about what's happened to our the world, to our country, to the church capital C, to our church, small c, um, we have been through the ringer. I have used the, the phrase um, getting shellacked. <laughs> uh, just when we think we're, we're going to gain some momentum, uh, we get hit again with a crisis or a wave or what, what have you. So um, how uh, presumptuous of me, or, or, or maybe how silly uh, or, or what a dreamer I am to think that I could come and stand before uh, those of you who are members of what was formerly the largest church in Western North Carolina and say, um, by the way, I believe your future may be bigger than the past. Um, but that's what I'm saying. <laughs> and I hope that you hear that not as the voice of a mere dreamer, but um, as a statement that honors you uh, and how much I believe it. Speaking to you and speaking to those who may be listening by podcast. And I would speak even to those of you who are not members of our church who are listening in on the podcast. To recognize the magnitude of this moment, the opportunity of this moment. Uh, so we've talked about uh, where the church has been and how we can reimagine ourselves as a kind of alternative community, a sacred community in the world. Uh, we've talked about finances. Last week, a couple of rough patches of material there, some hard things to, to talk about, really in both the first session and the second session. Um, thinking about finances and the challenges there and all the old models that uh, we still use but don't quite lift the luggage anymore, including the stewardship model, which is what we use. Um, Wells talks about these being models that can be effective still in some ways, but they're, they're not going to get us uh, to new dreams. Uh, and they're not going to equip us uh, to meet the moment in the ways that, that he's trying to teach us, and I'm trying to teach us, um, that God can uh, use us in new ways for a world that really... Uh, and, I, and I'm not exaggerating, a world that has moved on from the church. The world has moved on. Um, and depending on which scholars we cite, we could probably go back 100 years all the way to Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was saying this in Germany uh, in the 1920s. And then he only increased his volume as the Nazis came and the Third Reich and all. Um, tonight I want to talk about how, uh, in spite of the world moving on, uh, we can become a blessing. We can bless the world, embrace the world, uh, and still be the faithful church in the world, and even grow as a church, in spite of the world having moved on. Tonight's theme, God empowers the church not merely to offer blessings, but to be a blessing in the world. Everything we're about, it all fits under that umbrella of blessing. 
That is to convey uh, the, the presence of God, the, the truth of God uh, to the current situation or to, or to others. It's a way of invoking God's presence and, and, and unleashing God's power through, through human action uh, to, to others. So becoming a blessing, our theme for tonight, our final theme. I want to go back to a, a story that one of my teachers brought to my attention. I was sitting in class, as he told the whole class, he was frustrated the morning after he watched David Letterman. Uh, he, he stayed up and watched David Letterman, and, and uh, Michael Douglas, the, the famous actor Michael Douglas, was uh, promoting something, I don't remember the movie he was promoting, but he was the guest on the show, kind of the, the keynote guest, and they had a conversation, and that was the night you may remember where he disclosed that he had cancer, he had throat cancer. And he kind of joked that uh, it was caused by smoking and drinking, and, uh, and he said, that's because I, I smoke and I drink. And <laughs> so he has, um, that was just kind of part of the humor of the night, but it was also really a serious moment because here's a, here's a person that people around the country identify with and, and enjoy his performances or whatever. Um, and, and had a, a lovely conversation with Dave Letterman. And at the end, my professor was, was frustrated because David Letterman didn't bless him. Now, he, he did. He sort of did, but he didn't. So he, he said, I feel like uh, I should do something. Can I hug you? And so Michael Douglas said, sure. And they stood up and they hugged. Uh, but this was not enough for my professor. We, we needed a little bit more meat on the bone there. Um, and I think that's, where the, that's what he was suggesting the church has the power to do. The church has a language uh, and practices that are more than hugs, that can really convey the power of God in these kinds of moments. So the church has these sacred gifts to share with the world. Uh, the sign of the cross, anointing with oil, prayer, invoking God's name. <clears throat> And, and, of course, embracing, too. But so much more than embracing. There are, we have so many riches to lean into to bless the world, to bless other people. And then again, the world also has sacred gifts to share with the church. And I think uh, that's really at the heart of the theme of this book. That the church can be a, a site, a locus, uh, a place where the church and the world bless one another. The church can be a place that reminds people that the world uh, is full of so much more than we can see and that we can verify scientifically. Uh, the world, the church can say and should say, is not disenchanted. This reminds me of something that uh, character Saul Bellows, Humboldt's Gift, his novel Humboldt's Gift says, the educated speak of a disenchanted, a boring world. But it is not the world. It is my own head that is disenchanted. The world cannot be disenchanted. This is, I think, really at the heart of of what the, the church can share with the world now, to be a place where people can be reminded that, the, that God has filled the world with, with enchanting things and people and stories uh, that we can trade and share and amplify 
Wells talks about a couple of proposals for uh, how this can play out. And he, also, um, he speaks of uh, a couple of authors who use some metaphors that can be helpful as we seek to be a blessing to the world. One is the author uh, artist Makoto Fujimura, who talks about places like churches, not just churches, but places like churches not thinking of themselves as the pure stream of water and the world is the saltwater ocean and, and we're the pure ones uh, and, and we exist to kind of be the, the fresh alternative, the drinkable alternative to the world uh, which uh, we have to somehow desalinate to make potable. <laughs> and, and Fujimura says we should think of ourselves, or communities like ours, should think of ourselves as more like estuaries, where fresh water and brackish water meet and create a really unique kind of ecology. Um, and then in this ecology, the purpose is not so much to protect certain species as it is to prepare certain species uh, to do things uh, that are really unique. So if, for example, the oyster he offers the oyster as an as a, uh, organism that lives in this kind of brackish water or can. And the oyster uh, resides there and it actually cleanses the water. Uh, put, put oysters in some polluted water, they will clean the water. Uh, they may sort of pollute themselves in the process, but eventually they, they filter all of these pollutants out. And, by the way, oysters create what else? Pearls. Um, so just this really unique creature that lives in this really unique place. It's not trying to, to um, again, we're not trying to be the church that says we're clean and we're pure and we know, uh, uh, we know things that you don't know. Uh, and until you know these things, you can't be like us. Um, we're not going to be this kind of insular community. Um, nor are we going to be, uh, so to speak, uh, just uh, you know, not unique at all and, and try to reflect the sense of the, the whole world and not be any different from the world itself. We're actually stand apart uh, from all of it. We, we are, a, there's nothing quite like a community like the church when it takes on this kind of dynamic. So the estuary, church's estuary, a place where fresh water and brackish water meet and create this really unique ecology. And then, that's Fujimura. Then Rowan Williams, uh, Wells quotes, talking about churches or communities like the church being places of beauty, that nurture beauty, that make beauty possible uh, in ways that the world cannot always afford to make. Uh, often the world has to commodify beauty in order to make it work, to make it um, something that can be exchanged and appreciated. Uh, but the church, again, doesn't have to make everything profitable. The church, again, where, where did most, where did rock and roll start? If you really trace rock and roll back, you go back to the black church. Um, and some of the most famous rock and roll bands in the world, say the Rolling Stones, for example, they will still tell you today, we were just trying to be a good blues band. And they were studying black musicians from the Delta uh, who, uh, 
whose music came out of uh, the old black churches uh, and the rhythms and the, and the kind of cadences that you could find of slave, sla enslaved people hiding in the woods and, and using their instruments um, and creating the, these really unique sounds. All that kind of comes down all the way to the musical family tree. Uh, I don't know if young people would, um, over, over the last several generations, would like to admit this, but thanks to the church, we have rock and roll. <laughs> um, anyway, I've sort of digressed here, but um, I get excited about something. So, so Rowan Williams is talking about the church really can be a place that nurtures the arts, uh, a place where beauty can rise up, and it's just there for its own sake. And not only that, it's there to help improve the lives of people. So true art, he says, well and honestly made, will exhibit an overflow of presence that generates joy. Take, for example, um, when, our, when our choir sings an incredible, I mean, they're incredible every week, but when they, when they do something that really connects with everybody somehow, and you can just feel the energy in the room, and you hear when they sing that final note and come to a stop, and to a rest, the whole congregation Either some people try to clap, some people are just saying amen. There's a kind of a mixture of emotions and responses. Um, this, this art, this beautiful thing that's just happened, it overflows. And it's free. <laughs> then, Wells talks about the church in the same vein as being this kind of unique ecology where beauty can happen for its own sake for the sake of others, for the sake of creating and sustaining community, um, creating pleasure for the community. He talks about the church as a public parable. And I remember reading this book for the first time. It was after we had been talking about uh, being a parable church, and I was so proud of myself that something I thought of overlapped with, with Sam Wells. I was like, wow, I'm as smart as Sam Wells. And then I thought about it some more. I was like, no. I am not a small sample, but I have that one thing. Um, but the church is a public parable. Now, we've been talking about this kind of thing for years, where the hope is that when people cross the threshold of our property, cross the, the, through the doors of our sanctuary for a worship service, they walk into a room that is enchanting, it isn't beautiful, and, and it, it's a space that strikes them as, um, uh, as both strange and promising and revelatory in a way that maybe they, that surprises them or, or that they haven't experienced before somewhere else. But the, the reason that's parabolic is because that's what the parables do to us. If you, when you spend enough time with a parable, you realize that it's not just a, a little riddle that you have to solve and there's only one way to solve it. In fact, it's this like living, breathing organism. It's this story that Throughout a lifetime, you couldn't turn it like a gem enough times to see um, different fractions of light. I mean, every time you turn, you're going to see something different. And every time you see that thing, you're going to be seeing a revelation of the way God thinks, the way God interacts with us, something new about the kingdom of God. Um, that's how parables work. They, they shock us. They strike us. Uh, they disorient us, 
The church is like that. That's, that's the kind of thing Wells is trying to evoke. In fact, he says the church is itself not just a place that holds the arts. It is itself a work of art. The church is created as an art, a, a, a work of art by God, decorated by the movements of the Holy Spirit and sustained by the Spirit. In fact, he quotes Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. He paraphrases it and says it a different way. Uh, instead of the NRSV, which says something like, we are what God has made us, Well says it actually makes more sense to say we are God's work of art. And it is a work of art as both a place where art can be displayed, performed, appreciated, but it's also a people whose lives have been changed by encounters with an artistic God. In fact, another one of my professors, I, I love the way he talks about small churches, because big churches like us, we, we have resources, we have um, beautiful, uh, extraordinarily beautiful um, buildings, and, and we, we have you know, people come up in our parking lot all the time. And I'm, I'm coming in from, from lunch or something, and I'm or, or walking through the parking lot, into the sanctuary entrance where I come in usually. Um, twice last week it happened. I, I stumbled upon people who had just walked into the parking lot from I don't know where, and they're just standing there like this. <laughs> and I always say, you want to come in? And they always say, <gasps> you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, the last couple I said, are, are, you are you affiliated here? And I was like, yes I am. <laughs> I didn't tell them, but I did welcome them in and told them, but, but this happens all the time. But, but we have this kind of unique treasure in our architecture and the way it strikes people, and it is beautiful. But one of my professors said, in, in the smaller church that maybe meets in a, a, you know, a metal building on the frontage road, where's the beauty there? And he says, it's in the faces of the people. Well, we have both. Um, I remember Cecil Sherman coming and preaching. Uh, Cecil Sherman, if you don't know, was pastor here from 64 to 84 and was a mentor and friend and teacher of mine. Um, he, first thing he said when he got up to the pulpit, uh, about 100 people there, he said, it's a good looking crowd. Few exceptions. <laughs> But overall, it was a pretty good-looking crowd. Anyway, that was Cecil. Uh, but the beauty, yes, we have beauty, of course, uh, and so many things we can find beauty here. But the beauty is also in our faces. The place holds art, sustains art, but it also is art. God's art. But I think also what Wells is inviting us to see that the church that recognizes itself in this way as a work of art must also recognize that it's not us versus them. It's not church versus the world. It's not us as the insular community. It's not us as the, the fresh water as opposed to the, the salt water. But actually it's a meeting place. The church is a meeting place of church and world. Where the church's gifts and the world's gifts come together. And also, by the way, a place where we can learn and be reminded 
that that church world dichotomy runs through every human heart. The church world, the church, and we hold church and world within us, all of us. So it's important to remember that we're thinking about ourselves as, as a work of art, as a place of, of um, cultural achievements, artistic achievements and performances. And, um, we're making these beautiful things, we're doing these beautiful things together. But, and so it's not so much that we have a culture, it's that we are a culture. The church is its own culture, its own ecology that's unique in the world and can do things that other cultures or ecologies can't pull off quite the same way. That's the gift that we have to give to the world. Does it mean we're more special in the world or anything like that? But it means we have been equipped to bless the world. One another in the world. I want you to recall the openness of the new city and the eschatological vision that John has. I've mentioned this several times. This was part of the Beautiful Belonging preaching series back in September. Uh, I remain captivated by the vision, the final vision of the scriptures, where everything leads. Uh, where the Torah, the law, the prophets, the writings, the gospels, the epistles, all of it is pointing us towards this final vision of a new city. And, and what characterizes this new city? Uh, well, in part, it's beautiful. It's so beautiful that John can't find all the words to describe it, so he just describes it using jewels, many of which I can't pronounce, even when I go on YouTube and, and try to Google pronounce jacinth. I don't even know how the, but, but you're at the end of the word, end of words here trying to describe how beautiful it is. But the other really interesting dynamic you remember is that there are people coming in and out of the city. And the gates are always open. And the kings of the earth, the, eth the, the kings of the nations, of the ethnoses, are bringing their gifts in. From where? I don't know. I don't know where they're coming from. John won't tell us. He's, he's describing the holy city. Where, where the people of God are given to live, where there's no pain or sadness or crying anymore. But it's an open community. Um, it is, uh, if you will, brackish. It is a unique, eco, heavenly ecosystem. Uh, you're not going to get this in the Left Behind series books, by the way. But I'm giving it to you here for free. So, um, so, but the church, what is the church then? That's the vision in scripture. That seems far off. Uh, do I have to die to get there? <laughs> um, well, I guess in a way, uh, that is a rite of passage. However, the church now is a foretaste, a kind of practicum that knows that that is our final vision and can therefore begin to practice it, enact it, embody it as best we can, in spite of our sinfulness and our fallenness and our inability to see everything that we will eventually see. I see through a mirror dimly. I see through a glass darkly. But I can see. <laughs> and so seeing, we bring out of our final future into the present what God has promised. 
a community, a city uh, that's beautiful and that uh, encourages this kind of uh, economy of gift and exchange. It's open and has porous boundaries, but is also distinct and holy. Now, how does First Baptist Church of Asheville do this? And how can First Baptist Church of Asheville do this? So I want to hear, hear me say both. It's not that we're, we're not there yet and we need to start doing all this stuff to, to do what Mac thinks we ought to do. It, it's a both and. It's here we are and we're proud of who we are and what we've done and what, what we've done in these precise ways. But it's also how, how can we continue to learn and continue to grow into these kinds of visions that we've had that have been so um, life-giving for us? And how can we also, therefore, share them more broadly? And that's where we're getting to the bigger part of our future is bigger than the past. Because when I say future is bigger than the past, I'm not talking about uh, filling the pews like we did in 1989 and having two services with people sitting in the windowsills. I mean, I would love that. But I think if we're gunning for that, uh, we're going to have a long way. The, the bigger part of bigger than the past is that we discover ways to bless the world uh, in, in, in ways that the blessings spread out farther than we ever imagined. And then, yes, sometimes we will have people sitting in the windowsills, but they won't all be confessing Christians. It'll be that, um, that unique ecosystem I was talking about. Fresh water, salt water. And by the way, the people who aren't confessing Christians are not the salt water. <laughs> and we're not the fresh water. I mean, there's, a, there's a mixture there. And it's, and it's happening in this special place. So where, might, where would you see examples of this happening? So before the pandemic, in worship, and we're going to bring this back, by the way. We're going to reclaim this. But, but for a, quite a while, maybe a year or so, before the pandemic happened, you may remember we had these kind of mission moments or these, these offertory moments where somebody would bring in an item uh, and lay it on the communion table. And then they'd go up and they would pray and give thanks to God and dedicate the gifts that we had shared with God. And they also mentioned the item on the table and bless the ministry or the organization that it had been a part of. That it signified. Um, so imagine if we were to do that and reinstate that. What's something we might do or, or bring in to bless? Well, recently, uh, not long before the pandemic, I took this uh, staff. We were all excited to go. We've been talking about doing this for a while. We finally did it. Uh, we went on a hood huggers tour. Anybody even know what hood huggers is? <laughs> okay. All right. So um, some of you do. Hood huggers is a local organization that is run by a few folks, mainly Dwayne Barton, a black leader uh, in the neighborhood, really, that, that connects with our neighborhood, our church neighborhood. Uh, and they do a number of things. Um, they're into the arts. Uh, they, they've sort of retrofitted and, and reclaimed some, some spaces that uh, were, were damaged or taken during urban renewal, and you, you can go down um, near the, the foundry area where that new hotel is and you can see 
some of these spaces they've decorated with uh, telling stories of the black experience in Asheville near Black Wall Street and all. But at one, of, one of the main things they do is Dwayne will take you and your group and put you in a band and, and cart you around Asheville and teach you African American history, black history in Asheville. Uh, so anyway, um, the staff comes up and we, we've sort of signed up and we bought our tickets and we, we arrive at the Stevens Lee Recreation Center and we're waiting for someone we don't know. We don't, I didn't know what he looked like, so I didn't know who I was waiting for. But all of a sudden, uh, Dwayne Barton comes up to us. Uh, and uh, he, he just kind of looked like suspicious. You know, there's eight white ministers uh, who've come to go on a tour of Black Asheville. And so he goes, uh, so what, what are y'all doing here? <laughs> and I said, Dwayne, I'm, I'm Mac Dennis. This is, these are my colleagues. We're the ministers of First Baptist Church, uh, and we, we really are um, uh, a church that cares about our community, and we're a learning church, and we know that we've been involved with things in the past that have hurt black people, and we know that we want to be part of undoing some of that, but we need to know what we're talking about. We don't know our neighborhood well enough, and we, we're coming here to learn from you. And then he was like, all right. <laughs> he took us on an amazing tour and he really poured his heart out to us but I was thinking like for an offertory one Sunday what if we brought something uh, that signifies the work of the hood huggers community laid it on our, our communion table and prayed for them and gave thanks to God for them and drew attention for the whole congregation to their work and blessed it that's, that's something that, that's just one little thing an example of what I'm talking about, blessing the world, being a blessing, drawing uh, the good work of our community uh, into our worship service and exposing it and re revealing it and, and hopefully amplifying it and, and showing that it is part of the kingdom of God and that God, God does care about it. That's one thing. What's another thing? Well, another way we can be a blessing to the world. Well, for years we've been talking about, or at least I've been talking internally with staff and others, and it's kind of spread out to, to finance and deacons, or it's still making its way out. Uh, but that is ticketed concerts for native musicians, um, indigenous musicians, artful musicians who can help come and bless us, and also provide an opportunity to bless the community with their work. Um, and we're going to have one of these concerts. And of course, we have concerts all the time for sacred music and, and all, and they're wonderful. But this will be our first ticketed concert in partnership with a performer coming up in two months. Gregory Tardy is a jazz saxophonist. He'll be here on March 29th, 6.30 p.m., uh, in our sanctuary for the journey to perform the journey, a Pilgrim's Progress Suite. Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. At one point, the, uh, the most popular book in the world other than the Bible. Um, John Bunyan was a, a Baptist, a Christian, a Baptist, uh, and he wrote this extraordinary tale, this metaphorical tale of a Christian's pilgrimage through the world. And so inviting Gregory Tardy to come, this will be sort of an AFTA-sponsored event, enables Gregory Tardy as an artist to come um, 
and to share his gifts with us. It enables us to share his gifts with the community and to create a unique space for a performance that might not happen like this anywhere else. To be available to people that may not be able to afford to see it somewhere else. So in that way, we're trying to, to be a blessing, to convey the story of uh, the kingdom of God and, and individuals walk through it uh, in a musical performance that's never been done before. I don't think in public. I think it's, I think it's the world premiere. <laughs> but how, how can we continue to build on that kind of vision where we create, uh, where we welcome people into our space so that they can use their gifts and we can enjoy their gifts and we can also make those gifts available to the community in a way that it might not otherwise be possible. We have the space. We have the people. We have the, the love for our community and we have the love for the arts that can help make this possible. We'll see how it goes. So it's a, it's a bit of an experiment. But that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. So just one other example of the kind of thing I'm talking about. And then... Uh, and I can't say too much about this because I'm not allowed. Uh, they would cart me off to, um, you know, some secret prison somewhere, I think, if I divulge too much information. But you all know that we have a campus plan committee, a campus master plan committee, for lack of a better name. Um, and you know that we've been talking about lots of things uh, along the, the lines of the theme of bringing the neighborhood back. So, our sanctuary and original buildings were originally built in a neighborhood. If you look at old pictures, you see the front of our sanctuary, the portico. You walk out the portico, and right now you look out over asphalt. 240, yeah, asphalt. Where am I looking? Uh, it's also, by the way, like Gossel said, uh, the coldest place on earth uh, when the wind is blowing in the wintertime. Um, but you're, look, you're looking out over what used to be a neighborhood. And right around where there's asphalt now, there were houses. And there was a, a high school. And there was a, a shop. Was it Shanley's? Chandler's. 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 Just knows because he got in trouble going there during church. <laughs> um, but but that was really, uh, that was taken away. And I'm still learning about all that story. Uh, urban renewal just sort of paved around us and it paved through uh, Black Asheville and really mangled their community. But what if we have the opportunity in some sense, some way, shape, or form to bring a neighborhood back? And what if we have the ability to create community by doing that. Um, and having neighbors again that live close to us. What if, I don't know how all this is going to play out. I'm not in control. Uh, my, my hope is that in a couple of months this will be in your hands. But we, we have to be very careful and think carefully about this with the campus planning committee and with the deacons before we can get there. But I'm confident we'll get there. This will be in your hands, and this dream will be up to you. And just think about all of the wonderful, beautiful encounters that will be in store for us if we're able to do that. 
Because right now, when I walk out of work and I look across this great expanse of parking lot, the first thing I see is about 200 yards away is people coming in and out of the Y. And they're all the way over there. And I just want to be like, hey, we're over here. <laughs> we sent out a team, a small team of folks uh, during the pandemic to invite them to just come into our church. Just They walked around the perimeter neighborhood. Uh, walked into businesses, government offices, and handed out flyers and said, please come and just enjoy our sacred garden and come and sit in our sanctuary. And you know, some of those folks didn't even know we were here. It's not that they didn't know we had a sacred garden. They didn't know we were here. How can you miss us? <laughs> but you, people do. I mean... There's things along the way home from here, between here and on my ride home, that, that are new to me all the time. I'm like, man, I've never seen that before. And it's like beautiful, and I can't believe I missed it, but that happens to everybody. And I think that happens to people with our church. As prominent as it is, prominent looking and centrally placed as it is, it's still quite a stretch uh, to encounter neighbors just naturally who aren't already intending to be here. That dynamic could change. And if we are the kind of people that welcome that, they're actually excited by blessing them, just imagine what could be in store for our congregation. Now, I'll finish with this. So, um, Wells doesn't tell the story in this book. Uh, but Sam's been a, he's been a pastor his whole life. Uh, and he recalls in another story how someone once asked him, he was part of a, like a group conversation, some kind of peer learning group or something, uh, and somebody asked the question, what would you like on your tombstone? And I've told this in circles here before, but he was caught off guard, didn't know what to say. What do you say? Uh, Real quick, what would you like on your tombstone? I mean, what? I'm not prepared to answer that question quickly. I need to go home and think about it and come back to you. But Sam just blurted out, um, if it can't be happy, make it beautiful. And he tells the story of how um, he, he remembered himself saying that when he was invited to do a wedding uh, for a young lady whose father was dying. And they didn't think that he was going to make it to the wedding went for the date that had been planned. So he said, well, why don't we just uh, move it forward? So to make sure that he, he, can take you, he can walk you down the aisle. So they moved the wedding forward. Uh, and he was able to walk, the, the dying man was able to walk his daughter down the center aisle and give her away. And he died just a few weeks later. Uh, and so Wells remembered his, his sort of dream of an epitaph, if you will. Uh, if, it, if it can't be happy, make it beautiful. And it reminded me of what um, my first experience with the dying was with my own grandfather. Uh, my grandfather was a, a gentle man, uh, was a journalist his whole life, World War II vet, the whole thing. Uh, greatest generation, you know, to a T kind of guy. Quiet, I hardly ever heard him say much. Um, but his death, he died of cancer over the course of about six months. Um, and he was able to die at home. Uh, 
my dad is a physician, my uncle's a physician, so that we had a lot of people caring for him and could kind of sort of manage his pain. So it was really a gift to be able to have him at home where otherwise he might have been, you know, he, he might have been a facility or something. But he was at home. He was at grandma's house. They had a bed, his own bedroom, and we would go in and out and, and share time with him. And when it came uh, close to the time that he was dying, uh, I had a chance to say my goodbyes. We all took turns going in alone and saying our goodbyes. Um, but then the afternoon that he died, I was sitting out on the front stoop of the house, and I remember my mom coming out the front door and tapping me on the shoulder and saying, we think it's time, come on in. And we all surrounded him. Now the thing about Granddaddy is uh, he had really ugly feet. <laughs> I mean, how often do you see your granddad's feet? I didn't know he had ugly feet, and I always, always thought it was people were being mean. You know, stop being mean to Granddaddy. He didn't have ugly feet. Well, I'd never seen him. Uh, it turns out, Granddaddy had ugly feet. Uh, just poking out of his blanket down there, and I thought, okay, um, that's what everybody's been talking about. Um, but I grabbed his left foot and held it as he was dying. And my brother uh, grabbed his other foot and we just held, when you're dying, uh, death comes first to the appendages. You know, they start to turn a different color. They get cold. I didn't want his feet to be cold. So I held his, I held his foot. My brother held his other foot. And other family members put their, their hands on his legs and his body uh, and his head. And, and, that's, and that's how he breathed his last. He was surrounded and held. It was not happy, but it was beautiful. It was a blessing. I just think about all that our country has been through, all the world has been through, all that our community has been through, all that we've been through. And think about how beautiful we can make life for people by sharing the gifts that we have and welcoming the gifts that others can bring us. If we do that, friends, I promise our future will be bigger in a new way than the past. Questions? You're going to have to preach that on a Sunday morning. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Charlie. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll preach that again. We'll bring it back out. Okay. Um, I welcome questions you have. We'll, choir's coming quickly. Choir 30 is. Choir 30 is here, okay. Uh, but no, this is our last session. I welcome questions you have tonight. I welcome questions you have after tonight. Uh, so, but if any of you have tonight, I'd love to, to chat for a while before we close. Yes, sir, Doug. Could you say more about what we know about what the sheriff is going to do with these 
The Sheraton. Uh, so, right. My understanding is, well, they're, I think they're about to break ground. So the Sheraton, the Four Points Sheraton is the hotel across from the Y on our side. Uh, it's also where guest preachers come. We send them to stay there. We kind of have a little deal we worked out with them. Uh, they, they've been kind to us. Uh, but they're about to change big time. Uh, and it's about to be uh, totally renovated. And it's going to be a, this massive tower of, you know, apartments, condos, I think it's a hotel, it's going to be a hotel, uh, there's going to be, I think, maybe a, a, some kind of a small grocery store, like an earth fair or something like that, uh, maybe some other retail, I'm not quite sure, but it's going to be huge. <laughs> uh, it's coming. Yeah, that, that's all I know, Doug, some others may know more, I'm sure, uh, it's been in the news and all, but it's coming. In fact, when we were partnering with the Y, our initial conversations with the Y, uh, one of the things that that alerted to us, our side of, of the team, of the partnership, that if we don't, if we don't imagine ways to be faithful with our space and our property, uh, we're going to be surrounded by others who, who did before us. Uh, and uh, you know, the Y had big plans for. Uh, I don't know. I, by saying too much, but uh, we, we were just really surprised and we thought, oh, we thought we were thinking big. Uh, yeah. the, the, the neighborhood is growing this way, and uh, we'll, we're going to see that real quick with the Sheraton, um, but we have an opportunity to do something a lot more special, uh, a lot different, a lot more special, and, and something that's a lot, I think, um, sorry Sheraton, if anyone's listening. <laughs> Uh, something that's more for the common people of Africa. That's our goal. Matt. Yes. Here. With the greatest respect for the work that's been done for everybody on the committees, etc. Uh, can with enthusiasm for the things that you've presented. I keep having reservations because I hear you say, well, I can't talk about that. I can't reveal this, or I've said too much. <laughs> so it always makes me feel um, as if something big is going on, but and we're going to become enthusiastic, perhaps over something we don't know anything. That's a great question. Thank you for asking. It's been the source of uh, significant frustration for me as pastor to have to speak in code about some of these things. Um, the, the reason for that is, is really out of a care for the process and actually uh, a care for the community, uh, a care for you, for the church. Because if we're talking about um, who our partners might be or might not be or what we're able to do or not do, and that gets out and it becomes like, you know, the, the phone tree that gets out of whack, then all of a sudden something ends up in the newspaper or ends up on social media that was not at all part of the design. But then it actually complicates the matter so much that it's sort of, it's out, of, it's out and now we can't really control the, the narrative. Not that we're trying to control the narrative, but actually what's gotten out is not true. Uh, so that's why I've been trying to be really careful. So it's not, 
it, it, I would say rather than the word secretive, it's confidential. So we're having to keep confidences right now in order to protect our church, in order to protect the why, uh, and any other potential partners uh, that we've already been in conversation with. Because this kind of thing is so delicate that if, if the wrong get information gets out, then you, you've really broken trust with somebody in a way that's really irreparable because it's such a delicate process. What I'm excited about is that what has been held in confidence will finally be out in the open for us to talk about. I, I hope soon. I mean, it, this, this will be entrusted to the deacons and then to us. But that's the church process. And so really a lot of things that actually work that way already. We keep certain things in confidence before we're confident that the details are there and they're hard and fast. And then, and then when everyone else is talking about them, we're actually talking about what's, what it does exist. But I, I get the discomfort. It's really frustrating for me, too. Uh, and, and I have been um, concerned about perceptions of secrecy. And so what, uh, what I would ask all of you to do, and thank you for asking the question, uh, I think what I want to ask all of you to do um, is to continue to step out and, and trust that the folks who are holding these things in confidence are your representatives and people you care about and love and you do trust. And all you have to do is look up the names of the folks who are guiding us through this. They're our people. Uh, and they care about us, and they care about our future. Uh, so, I'm thanks, Mary. Thank you again for that question. And keep praying. And keep praying, yes. Yeah. Matt, you could mention a little bit about housing, because, as you mentioned, we were a neighborhood. Yeah. And housing would be a key part of any development that's proposed. Yes. And you had sent me, a, or sent all of us, an article recently about churches in San Diego. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so a lot of churches are, uh, that I think are, are, are being faithful with their resources are thinking about how to make affordable housing available um, by using their own property uh, to do that. Um, because the, it's not just that Asheville's in a housing crisis, the, the whole country kind of is. I mean, if there's anywhere popular to live, it's really hard to get into. Uh, and it's going to become more and more of an issue for our church. So what, what has been really at the center of a lot of these conversations, and one of the things that the Y and the church uh, really have in, in common and that we're excited about together is the potential we have um, to amplify affordable housing, to bring affordable housing to our neighborhood uh, in a way that cuts across the grain of all the developments that you're seeing in the news. Where you know the, the developer comes in and they build market rate housing, uh, ninety percent or ninety five percent, and the affordable housing is just kind of like a token thing thrown in to get through the process and get it past the city council and all that. Uh, and then that may not even exist ten years from now or twenty years from now, because they don't have to follow through with it after that. They're just trying to follow the rules now. But housing is critical here. But what we're thinking about is if, when we're thinking about affordable housing. Um, we're trying to think about the folks who really make Asheville Asheville, the, na the natives, the, the residents, the people who work and live here who, who can't afford to live here uh, the way things are. They're, they're teachers, 
They're, they're nurses. They work downtown in the service industry. Um, these are the folks that we care about. And these are the folks that, that when we imagine uh, their faces, we imagine what they're going through, and, and we imagine people we know that are going through this, that, that's part of the, the, the aspiration, the energy fueling this hard work, because it's really hard. It's really complicated. But yes, it is a big part of it. It's a centerpiece, I think, of this effort. And I, and I hope when we can talk more openly about it, uh, that the excitement will spread. Matt, just to piggyback on Charlie's comment, uh, and there's no, there's no way most of us would know this, but in urban centers in this country, and I, I know of three situations, two in Brooklyn, one in Chicago, our African-American churches have been at the vanguard of this housing, church-sponsored housing, business sponsorship for decades. Uh, uh, Bethany Baptist Church in Brooklyn, New York, late pastor was a close friend of mine. They had housing that they sponsored. They had uh, a restaurant that employed members and people working that restaurant. Uh, Gardner's Church. Yeah, Gardner uh, Taylor. Yeah, Gardner Taylor's Church in Brooklyn, same thing. Otis Moss in Chicago. They're taking over a whole block in Chicago. And the church is sponsoring housing, small businesses, and to revitalize neighborhoods. So we, we of Lighter Hue tend to think like, you know, we're leading the African-American community to blah, blah, blah. <laughs> well, the, the fact of the matter is African-American African -American Christian communities have been doing what we're talking about in urban centers for decades. We're kind of late to the party. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. We, we have time maybe for no more questions, but I'll take one more. <laughs> Well, I, thank you, Tommy. Uh, thanks, everybody. I, I do welcome questions you have. You can call me, email me, um, stop me after church, uh, and, and we'll talk. There's, there's nothing. There's nothing to be afraid of. There's really isn't. There's everything to look forward to. So, thank you all. Thank you.